0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sarah Katz, the host for this episode. So today we'll be talking to the novelist Iwoza Imaswan about his book, Fine Boys, um, which was published by Ohio University Press earlier this year. This follows um, an earlier uh, publication of the book in Nigeria in 2012. Ihoza, welcome to New Books.
1: Hello, everybody. Thank you, Sarah. Heard great things. Heard only great things. I know this will be fun.
0: Uh, so first off, Ihoza, I wonder if you could kind of um, tell us how you came to write fiction, uh, because I, I'm aware that you know you first were a, a medical doctor as well. So I'm kind of curious. How did writing um, get added. You know, was this a passion um, on the side you had all along, or did this develop later on in life?
1: Um, still a medical doctor. Don't tell my mom, please. So, <laughs> um, for for me, it was um, it, it was many things. It it was chance. It was life. It was love. Um, I wasn't one of those who who always who always knew they were going to write, or who started writing when they were four or five. Instead, what I was was, um, was a geek or a nerd, somebody who was really, really, really into books, who really read a lot. I was the kind of child who would be taking a stroll. I think my mom used to say this a lot when I got older, that she would be working with me in, in the markets. She was a pharmacologist, my dad was an engineer, and I would, she would turn, she would see this three-year-old with a piece of wrapping paper from the ground, and I'll be reading the newspaper article from maybe a week ago. That was now used to wrap rotting uh, vegetables, and she would spank my hand, gems, gems. So, so yeah, so that was my mom, and that was that was me. Now, the the, the thing about it was so Nigeria was trying to catch up. That was what was, that was what the seventies and eighties was about, and STEM education was a real thing. They really pushed hard for STEM education, and so once you showed any um, what's that what I'm looking for? Aptitude at all. You are automatically immediately pushed into a science class because the country needed doctors, engineers, and scientists. It kind of caused a problem for the liberal arts that we're still feeling today, where you had people who were also hardworking who got into the liberal arts, and now those who were pushed to engineering who had, who had really, really high aptitude are now coming as enthusiasts and are dipping their toes into places where they don't belong, even though it's supposed to be something that you're supposed to love doing. But that's another story. So th- that, that was my story. So I, I became a doctor. Still loved reading, loved playing, loved the law of things. I would play video games. And instead of enjoying the versus mode, I would, I would be reading the backstory of Sagat and Balrog on Street Fighter or what happened with Ed Boon on Mortal Kombat. I was, that was me. I, was the, I would be the, what we used to call no. That's the child who knew too much. Who would say, oh, do you know that in this FIFA game, the developer did they're like, dude, shut, shut up, please, please, shut up and play. That that, that was me. So I think what maybe start writing was um, 2005. Me and my mother got into this argument. Um, she had finished medical school about five years before. I was just kind of going to small clinics and just walking and just wasting time. I finished medical school by the time I was 22 and a half, so I was really quick. And I thought I had time, and I and I hadn't rested since I started primary school. I had I've been pushed and pushed and pushed. So I'll just, you know what, I'm just going to be lazy for the next few years. So my mother, one of the pushers came and said, "Uh, dude, you're just wasting time. You just want to be prescribing uh, chloroquine and paracetamol, what you guys call Tylenol. And um, that's what you want to do. You're supposed to be doing more. You're supposed to specialize in becoming a cardiologist or something. I'm like, mom, please, I finished medical school. I never disgraced you. I never asked to come to the police station to bail me out of trouble. I never got into trouble, never drunk, please leave me alone to be lazy." And she was reading a magazine. I think the magazine's name was o- ovation, and she called out and said, "Look, look at this girl,, look, look at this young woman." And on the picture on the cover was um, this young black woman who had written a novel. She had beads in her hair, and my mom said, "Look, look at this woman. She's written a, a book on popular on, um, hibiscus on flowers, on, on horticulture, and she's been, she's been praised for it. <laughs> and, and I look at him. Oh, Who is this guardian enthusiast that has written a book on flowers? So I said, "You know what, please." But the whole thing about writing books planted a seed, and there's this, there's this story that had been in my family for a long time. Um, my my mother's family um had been in the east during the civil war, just before the civil war when Nigeria had its war, and they were caught in the middle of it. And and my my grandfather spent the civil war in prison, accused of being a traitor to the country for. Protecting people from the massacres, and after the war, he left the uh, he left the police force um, in disgrace, and he spent his entire life until he died in the eighties trying to clear his name, and even his eldest daughter became a member of the House of Assembly, the Federal House of Assembly, trying to clear his name, but not. So it was a story that was in the family around the Asaba massacre, and there was there was some atrocities committed during the war. It was a story I, I wanted to tell. I had this idea for a science fiction alternate history take. On, on Nigeria. So I, I went to my old man, parents were separated at the time, went to my old man and said, Daddy, can I have a desktop? He said, "Oh sure, t- take one. Um, at, at the time, I, I didn't have a UPS. Um, a, a UPS is an un- uninterrupted power supply, which is a misnomer, because it's more of, uh, it gives you 10 minutes to shut down when, when the power goes out. So you plug your computer to a UPS, you plug the UPS to the mains, and you have 10 minutes. 10 minutes is a line. You have about five minutes to shut down. I didn't have that, so the power company was my editor. I had my computer set to five minutes auto-save, so every time the electricity went out, I lost five, five minutes of work. And the first, um, the first drafts of what I was trying to write were so bad, I didn't know what was wrong. I would write, I would like, oh my God, this is shit. And I would delete, and I would start out, half of it would be deleted by the electric company when they took light. And I eventually... I eventually started searching. You know, this was 2005, there was no Facebook, there was no social media where you could go and meet people. You were, there was, the internet was there, but it was mostly you would search and it was a wild, wild west There were liars. There was this place called the New York Literary Agency, which was full of fraudsters, where they would try to make you pay $100 for them to access your manuscript. It was, I, I didn't have a penny, so it was, it was pointless. But eventually I found the Science Fiction Writers of America. They had a the writer's resource page brilliant stuff and the americans had this idea this it wasn't intuition they they took the intuition out of it they were like carpenters they were craftsmen they showed you if you cut it this way if the sentence goes this way this works and that was so helpful because the kind of education we have was slightly more british where it was you should know it it was intuition you felt it americans didn't do intuition it was craft it was this this is how a manuscript should look this is how this should look this is how sentences should look there is no such thing as a free lunch show don't tell murder your darlings you know it was it was and that was what i just did studied all that eventually traveled to lagos and i bought um a copy of popular viscous the book on flowers the book on horticulture and i read it from the time i bought it i read it for i, I didn't sleep that night on the bus ride from Lagos back to Wari where I grew up in the Niger Delta, I didn't sleep. And the idea was that, oh my God, my, 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 banal, my, my, my generation has been given a voice to speak. You have to understand that in Nigeria at, at, at the time, literature was what you read in the curriculum and novels were what you read for fun. They were not the same thing. For those of us who were forced into the sciences, those who were in arts classes had the larger, vocabulary of books to read from. We didn't. It was just Chinua Achibe, Wole um, and several other titles of, of importance, of course, and, 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 and the British titles, Silas Manor, and the rest. You know, There was one other book that, oh my God, that book was punishment. The name will come. So, 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 so those were the books that we had to... But this book, Popular Episcopal, was like, oh my God, we are allowed to speak. Those of us born in the 70s can now speak. And the world will hear. And that's how I wrote my, my my second novel. Eventually, yeah, started it even before the first one was published. Mm. Yeah, and we should say right. too
0: that just for listeners who maybe don't know, Purple Hibiscus, not about flowers.
1: <laughs> not exactly, not about flowers, not about flowers at all. Yeah,
0: well, were there any other um, you know novels that also inspired you besides um, from Purple
1: Hibiscus? If like you... any
0: other favorite novels yeah, growing yeah, up yeah.
1: or. Pop-up like this was a trigger that made me write. Um, in terms of the kind of books I read, it was the kind of books that, were general literature It was Stephen King. It was, um, it was um, Isaac Asimov. It was Ben Bova. It was Arthur C. Clark. It was really, it was the weird stuff. And, and that was why when I was searching for how to write, when I was really stuck, I actually had to go and get an American grammar school book on writing. And I, and I got one, a junior high school book on writing. And because I knew it intuitively. It was the only language I spoke. I, I speak two languages. I speak English and Pidgin English. In Nigeria, they are one language. Nobody thinks they are two, but that's what I speak. I, I can't speak my language because my parents are from, are from two different ethnic groups and English was spoken at home. So I knew the language, but the writing wasn't working. So for me, it was, yeah. So the kind of books I really read before I got into the profession itself were, um, were science fiction, mainstream fiction, Richard w- are not partisan, the easy stuff um, was The Gentleman's Name who did uh, Michael Crichton before I found out that I was a climate change denier or a climate change skeptic. But yeah, but it was a genius. It was God to me growing up, you know? It was now when I got older, when I started writing and I started reading uh, The God of Small Things by Arudati Roy, I started reading. Mm. I started exposing myself since 2005. Before then, I read some important stuff, but I started noticing when I was now the, an artist myself, and as i seen the intricacy of language, what language could do, what you could, the, the jokes you could crack, the idea behind choosing point of view, and why first-person point of view, while seemingly easy was extremely difficult, because you had to know what not to show, you had to know what the, the narrator was unaware of, and you had to give more to the reader to know that this narrator is being unreliable to see that, to see how difficult it was to make something easy to read, you know? So that's when I now grew up into... So The God of Small Things was a revelation for me. Um, there was somebody who was the most brilliant person I'd seen at writing dialogue, um, Sefi Atta, A-T-T-A, Sephi Atta. She wrote um, Everything Good Will Come. Came out in 2004, 2005. And her dialogue was so home, you know, because I'd grown up reading... Um, reading, you, know, you read dialogue and dialogue was, dialogue is artifice, it's, it's not really the way people speak, but to read what this woman was writing, to read the way she, the way she, the way our people spoke, the, the way she created it, that impression of, it was, I, 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 I don't have the words, but that was what eventually happened as, as, as I grew into it. Yeah, so, so for me, it was always the carpenters, not the sculptors. It was the craftsman, not the artists. You know, that was where my inspiration came from, yeah.
0: And I'm also, I'm curious a little bit about your process of writing fiction. Like, do you start out by kind of, you know the plot? Um, or do you kind of first develop characters? Or are you kind of like writing as you go and you're not entirely sure kind of <laughs> where the novel will go in the end?
1: Yes. Okay, so um, I, I have an idea. I have an idea. Of what I want to engage, then I I spend, and this is the part that I that, that 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 is most fun because I'm not actually doing any work, but I pretend to be working. So I'm sitting down and I'm workshopping it in my mind, and I'm like, please leave me alone. I'm working. They're like, dude, you're not what, what the, you're not working. Yeah, but but so I have an idea, and I have a notepad and and I have an idea of what's going to happen. So two friends meet in school, one dies at the end, or two. Uh, oh, this is Nigeria in 2003 there was an election that was won by the wrong party in, two, in 1979 how did the country grow up as a centre left country, instead of a centre right country and this character is a policeman and I start playing it out, now in the, in the writing itself, what I do is that I only plot three two chapters ahead, so I have a general idea so I had to, I, then it was prescription pads, which are really brilliant prescription pads are like this small, they're like A5 about the size of a trade paper bag. And I would um, write bullet points. So chapter four, bullet points, this meets, this meets, this is the scene, this is the conflict, this, meets, this, meets, this person gets out. Then I would plot chapter one, plot chapter two, plot chapter three. Then I would write chapter one and two. The writing of chapter one and two would change chapter three. Then I would go back, I would mean it on the chapter three plots, change it, then plot chapter four and five, then write two and three, Write three and four, then re- redesign five and six and seven. It was, it was like, you know, it was, yeah. And, and I did that for both books, for my first book to St. Patrick and for my second book, um, Fine Boys. For the one I'm working on now, it's less so. It's, it's, it's not really working that way. So I guess that every book is its own thing. Um, but the idea that you still, that for me, it's about an idea and I must know the ending. I, I, I kind of have an idea of the ending. Mm, At times, okay. the ending changes, but most times it, it, it doesn't because it's like a puzzle for me to try and make it work. It's, it's intuitive. I, I, I don't know why it works, mm. but I just know that I have this and I know where, where it will end. And I can I see tell tell. I say So it's more like, story.
0: how are you going to get there?
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right. Um, so now that we know kind of a bit about more about you and kind of how you work, uh, let's turn to the novel, Fine Boys. Uh, So, you know, in preparing for this interview, I, of course, you know, i read a bit uh, about you and I noticed uh, many similarities uh, between you uh, and the main character in Fine Boys (laughs) Away End. You are both from Wari, um, as you mentioned, you know, a city in uh, Delta State, um, which is also kind of the center of oil production. You both attended the University of Benin and studied medicine. Uh, and you both came of age, you know, mm-hmm. in the 1990s. So, you know, most of the plot of Fine Boys takes place from sort of 1993 to 1995. So I suppose this question is kind of twofold. So first, kind of to what degree is the novel inspired by your own life? Um, and second, kind of what inspired you to write about this particular period of time? Kind of why 93 to 95 and kind of, you know, college
1: life? Uh-huh yeah so um it's, its it's a question that i always I always used to deny when the book first came out, but now I don't care anymore so yeah so so, so the book is um um I think I can say it now the book is autobiographical fiction it is what, what was it it was either going to be a memoir or a novel and um so but a novel was easier because you could just make shit up, you know <laughs> The parts were really difficult I remember when um when Chimamanda first. Chip Chimamanda, Chimamanda came across an early draft of it and told me that ah, there were some places because I told her what it was about, and she said there were some places that were really stiff and didn't feel right, and that, that was those were the places that she felt that I was now making stuff up, and the other places that flowed better were where she felt I was reading, I was reading directly from things that happened. And I, I told her actually it was, it was the other way around. <laughs> the awkward, clumsy shit was what happened because you plot real life doesn't plot well there the smoother sections where the things that yeah so in 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 terms of the starting off point and why I wrote it it's basically what I said about um a certain kind of book that was coming out as at that at that time you know we um we grew up on your stuff, you know we um we, we were in the middle we generation x we we grew up on the same shows, mostly the United Kingdom shows, but some American stuff too. Um, Stavsky and Orch and the rest. And, and we grew up on that stuff. But it took getting older, getting to the age at which your parents are. By the time you're 30, you remember your dad when your dad was 30 because you were about 2 or 3 years old at that time. And you're making choices. And you're not so, oh my god, these guys were children when they had us. I don't know what I'm trying to say, but it, but it was that idea of, of noticing. There was something I read once where they said the Function of the novel is to comment on the human con- condition. Is how do you tell people that I matter? How do people that we matter? That we, as a cadre of Nigerians of people, were here, and this is what we lived. And you will you will recognize yourself in these stories, and you will also have you will also have explanations for certain things you see. So you find out okay, this is a country that exports both oil and people. Why are they so loud? You know. <laughs> Why are they always like this? Where do they come from? What does it mean? Why? So it's something that happened when I was um, in 20. Um, I'm not a very experienced traveler. So I, I, I don't travel. So in 2014, I was invited to Germany for um, uh, the Goethe Institute was, was inviting um, several um, publishers from, um, it wasn't developing, it was from countries that were, yeah so and for us some guys from Colombia, some guys from argentina somebody from venezuela a ghanaian somebody from saudi arabia and the rest and i was the nigerian and a kenyan and i remember that i didn't even know that i was doing it but the russian publisher was a russian rep was like god why is this god he's so bold he's so bold and i didn't know i wasn't being bold i was you know the thing that Chimamanda said where she said that she didn't know she was black until she got to America? Mm-hmm. You don't know, you understand that thing? That was mm-hmm. kind of yeah, a yeah. thing. We're loud and it's just me and I had no idea that, that it was a thing. I was just... So it was that is what the story was about. The story was trying to, trying to explain us, to us really. Because for a long time, I used to have this issue about audience, about whom are you telling the story to? And I found out that the best person to tell the story to was to your people, to the people who got it. And you told it in such a way that every other person who was in voyeur, who was staring in, would also get it and would also get your people and get why they understood And that was the idea behind it, trying to tell a story without explaining and trying to tell a story to our people. So that was why I wrote Fine Boys. Why I wrote it around that time, it was surreal. so real. Pop- so popular Ibiscus had dealt with the decade before. You know, if you read popular because you can see it kind of ends, if you know what was happening in the zeitgeist, popular hibiscus kind of ends in the early 90s from the time that fine boys takes off from. And it's the same generation of people. It's the same age group. Campbell is 15 in 91. AY, AY is, um, is uh, 16 in 92. And those same characters are the characters you see in, in Americana a decade and a half later. And their 20s in the, in the early 90s. It is the same group of people is the gen x of nigeria people born in the 70s post-civil war the people who were the children of the imf the imf conditionalities you know where we were told that you needed to tighten your belt during a recession but when 2008 hit, we now found out that that was bullshit. that you needed to spend your way out of the recession you know it's, it's yeah <laughs> it was one of those it, so it was the, one of those things where where you yeah so that was why i needed to, I, I needed people to see that we were and and that were pretty cool too. We're fun. And yeah, <laughs> that was the idea.
0: And then, sort of, uh, besides your own kind of experience, did you also kind of do any research for the book, like you know, interviewing maybe friends and family to try to incorporate some of you know other experiences in, or was it mostly based on your own?
1: Oh no, oh no uh, the the interviews were the interviews were. The interviews already existed. The interviews were there already. So if, if you lived the experience, you spoke to friends who had their own experience. So for me, it was mostly, do you remember this that happened? I would call a friend. Do you remember? And mobile phones were just starting. There. Do you remember what happened then? People said, say, no, that's not the way it happened. Dude, they would have an argument about it and they would explain. So that's brilliant. And we'd have that argument. And um, for the, um, for the stories of what happened in the 70s and whatever, I was... I was this bug Bill was always on my father and asking, oh, why? Why? Oh, is is that correct? Is that correct? And he would always explain stuff to me and and explain what happened when he was in the UK in the 60s. And certain certain family legends got into the book, like the story of um how my father got blacklisted when he was working in shell because he broke a snooker, a billiard stick on the white man's head for saying that black men. Black men couldn't play billiards because they couldn't think strategically. You know, so some of the most absurd stuff happened. Happened really. So, so, so it was that kind of. It was that, yeah. That, that was the idea behind it. And you, you find that with writing, you you become a betrayer of secrets because you, you no longer have fun in the moment. You hear a joke and you are thinking, God, how would that play in text? And you are ruining your own moment. So yeah, that was that was that was the experience of of the book for us.
0: All right. As has already come up a bit, you know, in a sense, you know, to me reading it, it seemed like the novel kind of contained two parallel stories. So, you know, one is the story of Nigerian politics and society, um, and then the other is the story of sort of young adults navigating college life, as well as sort of the transition, you know, into adulthood, reflecting also kind of on their parents as well. Um, so since some of our listeners uh, might not know much about Nigerian history, you know, you've already mentioned a little bit about the 1980s and how that was a time of austerity and sort of IMF uh, policies. Um, but, you know, can you share with us a little bit what what it was like to kind of be alive in the 1990s um, in Nigeria and kind of what were some of the key historical events that impacted um, people's lives? And, you know, I'll just sort of say, uh, you know, I really particularly enjoyed how you wove in Nigerian history into the plot of the novel.
1: Yeah. Um, thank you. Yes, it, it was um so you have to you have to basically do a quick history lesson of Ni- of Nigeria from 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 its name, which is um a play on the world's Ninja area. So it was mostly about a job. There was a politician who said and one of the founding fathers of modern Nigeria who said that, that Nigeria is just a geographical expression and not about its people. And you have to also understand that post independence, after the Civil War, there was this drive to create the Nigerian. And my generation was like the first of it, you know, and those where the rest of the world would call Gen X. So the Civil War ended in 1970. We were those born in the 70s, were born into a country that had the National Youth Service program which was um and i which, which was a play on um youths on one year ma- mandatory service but it wasn't military it wasn't even paramilitary although we had paramilitary training it was more about like it was a mix of the israeli and south korean one-year military service and the american peace corps because you were sent to a region as far from yours as possible to spend a year after graduating from university or graduating from teacher training or graduating from polytechnics to go and work as teachers as young doctors as things like that so and we were also put into what were called unity schools which were um, special um, schools that were created by the federal government they were were also called federal government colleges where children were taken as far away from their regions as possible to grow up with other 10-year-olds in high school and create a cadre of children who would be who, who would be um who would be nigerian who would grow up with other Ni- Ni- nigerians and understand how things worked and how things um uh, how how the country worked so the time the, the, the novel is set is is the 90s since independence the democracy has only been this is 30 33 years on we've only had democratic rule for 10 years in 33 years, the, the first re- republic was overthrown in a really bloody coup in 1966. There was the counter coup by other rival army officers. Back and forth, there was the war. The war ended in something that was really good—something called "No Victor, No No Vanquished," and which was shocking because everybody expected after the war to end there'll be massive programs and killings. It just ended, and on and on. Then in '79, the military left putting a Republican, um, uh, an American system, a presidential system to replace the parliamentary system. That lasted four years and it was really a mess. What they were corrupt. There was a lot of Nigerians were so angry with the democratic, messy democratic process that they basically cried for the soldiers to come back. And they came back in 1984. But by the time I was coming of age, by the time I was, by the time the characters in the book and me, myself, my generation were coming of age, by the time we were turning... Into our late teens, into young adults, people were getting exhausted with, with the army. This was and finally finally the army was going to leave. So there were two sets of it was weird because it was a long, drawn-out process. So there were, it was supposed to be a stepladder from local government to state government and in and national elections. So as at the time, the states in the federation all had governors. But Nigeria had been under the arm under the boot of the military for so long that we didn't understand what a federation was. We understood it in theory, we, we understood it in language, but we did not understand what a, um, what it actually meant to be in, in, a, in, in a federation. That It was that the states were, the federating units were not subordinate to the federal government. They were equal partners coming together to found the federation. So, it's, it's funny, it's one of those funny things where we don't know but in theory, we are told, but it doesn't really work. The army is run top down. It's not run where a major, who is a governor, can shout down a president, who is a lieutenant colonel or, or a general. That doesn't happen. So that, that was what was happening at the time. So there were, there were pro democracy movements, there were um, 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 military, um, there was military, there was pro democracy movement, there was oppression, while there was also freedom of expression. So it was a weird mix things would get worse after the period the novel is set things would get really dark with the abacha regime coming into power just as the novel is going on and the shooting of children of protesters who were mostly young adults and university students then of course democracy would come back in 1999 and bring but even now i think the zeitgeist now is that no matter how messy it is never again the soldiers should never come back. So even though the democracy is messy, even though people are angry and, and impatient with them, it's never coming back. So that was the period in which the book is set.
0: And one of the the key um events is this election annulment where uh, you know MKO Abiola, you know by all means appeared to have won, but now, then the election results get annulled. Yeah.
1: Let's pause. I need to answer a question from my wife. Yes, please. Oh, sure. Um, The last Last question was answered.
0: Okay, yes, good, good, yeah. Okay. So, and then I know one of the kind of the key, you know, events that gets brought up in the novel is the annulment of the election results that kind of saw MKO Abiola, you know, getting elected, but then those results get tossed out. So do you want to kind of share... um, a little bit more about that as well as kind of how you experienced that and kind of why you wanted to kind of foreground that in the novel.
1: Yeah, so, so, yeah, exactly. So, so my generation, um, M.K. Abiola was this gentleman who was always in the news. He was the wealthiest man in Nigeria, purportedly. He was um, involved in, um, he was this big philanthropist, it was the telecoms, magnets. Um, it, was, it was everywhere. It was, as I got older, that I understood that it was in the first generation. It was one of those people who were in the right place at the right time. So you see, in the 70s, in the late 60s and into the 70s, the military, after the war, angry at the parts that certain European countries played, you know, siding with the Breakaway Republic, siding with, you know, different, they now said they were more nationalistic. And even those who took part in the first failed coup, who understood the reasons why those happened. So the the first thing that happened was called the Africanization Decree. It was by decree, there were no, the Supreme Military Council would meet and issue decrees. So it wasn't an act of parliament. And they said that every govern, every corporation, every limited lab, every, every corporation, every company, overseas or local had to have a major, had to have majority Nigerian ownership or substantial Nigerian ownership that was the africanization decree so how did the companies get to do it they picked they picked members that were already in their senior management and made them shareholders eventually a more stronger version of the decree was promulgated called the nigerianization decree now people like mk abiola mk abiola was an accountant with um, ITT, I think it was an international telecoms company, Although, Fela, the musician, who was, who was from the same city as MKO called it, International Tif Because, So we grew up with that dichotomy, where MKO was this generous man, but the conscience of the nation was calling him International Thief Thief. So, because, And we are from the same city. And that's the same city that Obasanjo, who was the military leader at the time and also became a civilian president and basically guided the country through the return from, from the army was also from. So that's a weird aside. The, it's a very um, vibrant city. It was one of the last spaces to be colonized in, in, in the country to lose their sovereignty. I think that was in the 1920s or so. It was left alone by the British, but eventually became part of the southern col- colony. So there were these people who survived the Yoruba civ- Civil Wars in the 1870s and founded a city, Abiokuta, which is a city under the rock it was this natural fortified place, almost like where those Italian villages are. You know, you go to Italy, every village is up in the mountain. You're like, what the what the hell were you people going through in the in the, in the distant past that just to put your villages that far up? Okay, so so that was that was MK Up. You're like, was this enigma? It, it, it was many things. Vibrant, um polygamous, um, had loved children, had many kids, had the boisterous laugh, it was so charismatic not particularly attractive, but so funny, you know, that that excused everything else. It was brilliant. It was a lovely... That, that, that was him. So he had, I think he had always wanted to be president. So his friends, he was friends with the young army officers because he, he was their age mate in the 70s and was in the right place. ITT needed to become a Nigerian company. And they called the accountant and gave him shares and said, you be the placeholder, you be the figurehead. And that's how he became massive. He had a um, he had a football team in the Premier League, in the Nigerian First Division. He had companies, he had a newspaper, a national newspaper that was right of center. He joined the National, uh, national Party of Nigeria in 79, hoping that he would get the ticket to become one of the, the first southern presidents in 83. I think people say he was cheated out of it. But by '92, by 1991, 92, 93, he asked his friend, who was a military head of state at the time, that is this honest, is this going to happen? And the friend said, yeah, sure. It is honest. We are going to leave. So he, he tried the first time. He didn't go too far. But immediately the army, for some reason, the first set of presidential candidates, the army came and canceled and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the word is banned. It wasn't really banned, but basically disqualified all of them and said they couldn't run for president, that they were too much of the old guard and too corrupt. So those guys all stepped aside, all could not take part. You remember, there were civilian governors. There was half-democratic, half-military. And M.K. Abela won the ticket to the, Social, the party of the Social De- Democrats, which was different from what he had always been with the National Party of Nigeria. So he became the Social Democratic Party's can- candidate. And he ran against one other, quite nondescript guy from the National Republican Convention, which was our version of the Republican Party right of center, and trounced him in, 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 in the elections. We do not know whether it was the old friendships, whether it was the old rivalries, but some, and you know, with politics, it's so weird. Human beings, you tend to project your own idea of what's happening now that you think, well, I'm sure there was some intrigue, and you know, conspiracy thinking is very easy to fall into. It could just be something as simple as he and one army officer didn't get along, or they had an old enmity over a woman or something funny. But for some reason, the election w- w- was annulled as the results were being announced. Now, the gentleman who was the head of the National Electoral Commission at the time, NEC, went ahead and leaked the balance of the results. Never announced them officially, but released with a wink and a nod to the newspaper. network. you have to understand that the newspapers were all in the south, where MK Wabiola was. So even though he was a Muslim, he was a southern Muslim. His running mate was a northern Muslim. And the country was still inexperienced. The people didn't get it. The country is still young. Most of the... Citizens are in their teens and their 20s, and they are angry. And this is, we are coming out from austerity. The bounce back that occurred in the world the economy is still like five years away, you know? Um, so, yeah, so, so that was 1992, 93, 94, and, and, and 95 when the book is set. The elections were in the mid, middle of 93. Funny enough, the elections were occurred during a strike. And people think that the strike was allowed to go on because if university students had been in school, when the elections were annulled, the country would have burned much faster. Instead, the students were at home for a long strike where the lecturers and the governments, because the universities, most of the national universities were taken over in the 70s to help them fight tribalism. The paradox was that the government now took on universities that were originally independent and, and now had a cadre of educated staff that they had to take care of during the worst of the economic crisis. So the soldiers, the lecturers were on strike. But when the students came back to school in early '94, or even in middle of '94-'95, just after the annulment, they just the students just went into the streets. The country went up in we we we, we would say flames, but it it wasn't really flames. We were just angry students marching and setting burning tires on the road and protesting and blocking the highways. Yeah, so. So that was what that was the whole annulment about. For some reason, nobody knew why it was. MKO had gone abroad and had come back and had announced himself as president and had been immediately thrown into prison. The um, the next chairman, uh, Onfrey Wonsu, Wonsu, had gone to his hometown and just stayed quiet. Most of the people who had won, the governors had been thrown out of power by kind of coup in uh, 1994. That's how Abacha came into power. Abacha was IBB's, Svengali for a long time. He was the Mandarin behind him. He was the one who was bold, who could do anything. He was the one who, who it was like his strong man. Even though IBB, the former dictator, was the friendly, gap-tooted, they used to call him the gap-tooted Maradona because he was so charismatic that he could dribble rings around the politicians. Abacha wasn't that. But Abacha also wanted to become president. Wanted to become head of state after Bapangida. So he came in and he played his tape the only way he knew how to. By bribing, by brutality. It's weird when you ask, but why though? Because within four years he was dead. And he was dead of natural causes. That's what people say. There are always rumors surrounding his death. His death basically triggered the, the return to democracy by the late 90s. And within two weeks of his death, for some reason, Abiola also died. And that, coincidence or not, that kind of cleared the way for the country to move forward. Yeah, so that's how it became democratic. So that's where the book is set, in that messy space of the Mm -hmm. mid-90s, yeah.
0: Yeah, and some of what you said kind of leads into another question that I have, and that, you know, a kind of related subplot, if you will, is sort of activism on Nigerian campuses. And kind of here, I mean, you've kind of already done it a bit already, but I I just want to flag for... Uh, listeners who have never been to Nigeria, that sort of activism on Nigeria campuses uh, are, you know, in my experience, sort of much more radical and pervasive than on American campuses. You know, certainly in the U.S., it's not that students and faculty don't protest. uh, They do. Um, but as someone, you know, I've only spent a couple of years in Nigeria and yet I've seen campuses get completely disruptive and uh, shut down either by students, faculty or staff several times. Like it's it's not yeah. kind of unusual. So I, I was wondering kind of uh, if you could share a bit about your own um, experience with activism um, as a student and kind of why you wanted to highlight this in your novel.
1: So, yeah, I, I think. I was speaking towards its lack as at the time I was writing the book. You know, there's this idea of from what point, what's the point of view, what's the point of view of of the narration, but what about the point in time? When is the story being told from? So the story is being told from, if you look at it, it's being told 10 years post-fact or 15 years after the fact. And what is the narrator, first-person point of view, where is he telling the story from? So imagine Kent State and the shooting of students and imagine 1968 and europe what the university students were, were doing when the world caught fire that was nigeria from post-civil war after the civil war and throughout the 80s and 90s by the time abacha was done with the country in 1998 that wasn't a thing anymore uh, they are the, the and by the time the um so br- brutality worked then When the Democrats came into power, when democracy came back, when the politicians came into power, money also worked. So in the return to democracy, um, the Gulf War windfall and the um, rising oil prices of the early noughties and the increasing rising um, after George Bush went into Iraq for the second time. So there was this... Basically, the angry children, the passionate Naive children who used to who who used to stand on soapboxes and speak were becoming more, there were mobile phones to distract their listeners. Um, The political positions of student union presidents, which used to be so powerful, was now a position that the politicians were interested in who took it over. So it was money from politics got into the schools. The university gangs, that were always kind of a thing in the balance between the student union and the university gangs, what they call the, 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 the circuit calls, that became clear. So in that degradation of that space, student activism found there was nothing to be angry at, if, if you could say that. And the, ang- the kind of student that was sele- the kind of children that were selected for the, the selection biases in student union leadership became more towards money and dirty money and being able to not speak truth to power and basically the right kind of people stopped going into the student union so now the national association of nigerian students nans the nans president is a 50 year old man whose children are in university because for some reason nobody knew what happened they said that masters students and postgraduate students could become student union presidents, which wasn't really a thing before. It was basically an undergrad thing. And I saw his picture on Twitter and I was so shocked. I was like, this man, older than me, is a student union president. That wasn't a thing. The national student union presidents were in their late teens and early twenties. The, the universities, which was mostly leftist ra- ra- radicals, people who taught in terms of social justice and in those terms, yeah, the, as a society grows and becomes more mature, you find out that it's mostly nonsense. Right is right, wrong is wrong. Fair is fair. And that has become the politics now. So you see people just looking at him and saying, mm, these lecturers are on strike again, what for? Ah, these students, please do not disrupt me, I need to get to work. And you begin to ask, is that me because I'm older? Or is that the way it has always, is that the way my parents felt when I, was the age just a few years removed from my own twin sons and we were on strike and we were home and we couldn't go to school. No, but I don't think so. I think my dad used to say, it's good what the children are doing. We can't do it because we've learned fear. So my generation learned fear. Those of us who were born in the 70s and came of age in the 90s. 20 years later, which is weird because you, you still think you're a teenager even though you're in your 40s. 20 years later, with the demonstrations that occurred in the peak of the pandemic last year, this generation has now been taught fear. With the reaction by the soldiers, by the democratically elected governments, with the kind of reaction, because of course the, the um, president was a military um, head of state in the 80s. The reaction where you think that, oh, this protest, we understand the genuine right of Nigerians to protest, but the protest has been hijacked by opposition politicians. It's such an easy thing to say. Because it's the, and there have been statements about it from historical times. Give a dog a bad name in order to hang it. There are many different ways of thinking about that concept. And basically, to so this new generation, with the end starts with October twenty twenty of twentieth October twenty twenty, and the killings and at Lekki, this new generation has been taught fear. And I think that is one of the saddest things to happen. Because after our generation, our children have now been taught to fear their government. Because how do you protest for police rights, that policemen should be paid more, that policemen should undergo social justice, that policemen should leave the barracks and become part of the population, that the barracks, police barracks is a a wrong thing because it's an idea from a colonial government in succession where you put the policemen and lock them up separate from the citizens, that please give them housing allowance, pay them more, give them psychological profiles, and the police turn around and shoot you or your government now pays thugs who you're also fighting for they're the ones the police kills, not upper middle class children. It's those same thugs who are going about their business thugging, that the policeman shoot. And those thugs were now paid to disrupt the demonstrations. So the naivety of that set of people has now been brown, burned away. And I fear for where, where the country will go to next. You know, so it's that so it's a cycle. And that was what I was trying to, speak. at the time I wrote the novel, of course, all of this hadn't happened, but I'd already known by the time that, that, yeah, that student union governments were hopelessly bad, just by the late, by the early notice, it was already a, a theme. yeah.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask if, if sort of the lucky massacre, if that r- reminded you a little bit about what you were yes, kind it of did. going through yourself it did. as and, a youth, and,
1: yeah. Yeah, and, but imagine if the children were in school. I see say children when kids, but imagine the students were in school when it happened. It was during the pandemic, so the school universities were shut down. So the people were at home. So at least you could see parents calling their kids. Are you still at the demonstration? Please come into the house. Imagine if that had occurred when the universities were open. It might have been good because it might have purged the student governments of the corruption that had basically destroyed them in the last 20 years. Yeah, but instead, people now go privately into their phones. So you have Twitter activists, you have people expressing anger through um, encoded messaging systems, which makes it slightly more dangerous because when it erupts, it seems unexpected, unlike a child going on a soapbox and reading, you know, reading, because it's really, it's very easy to be angry in leftist language, you know, because leftist language always sounds really, really social justice And... You can't be nationalist if you are angry at the government, you know. So it's it's easy for most freedom fighters to lean towards the left, but to then be scarred and called communist or called um, opposition or called yeah. So it's yeah, it's it's um it's one of those it's one of the things that I look to engage in my fiction going forward but anyway. So just to jump forward to that that idea of honesty of truth of how, how, how else are you supposed to speak as a citizen? How do you survive this space where, where by definition, if you are unhappy about something, you're trying to free it, you're automatically leaning left. You know, how does progressivism survive when it is mm-hmm. needed the most? Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Um, on a somewhat, you know, different topic. So, you know, you have. As you mentioned, you know there's a number of challenges that you know college students faced in the 1990s. So not only, uh, as is detailed, is sort of the education itself sometimes getting disrupted uh, due to strikes, um, but you know you also have you know the problem of you know inconsistent uh, power, you know, electricity, and as you kind of briefly mentioned. Um, there is sort of the topic of sort of student cults or confr- uh, confraternities, um, yeah. which you know is sort of one of the most central themes in your novel. So perhaps you know we can talk a little bit uh, about them. Um, so you know, I, you know, I've heard myself about sort of student cults, and you know, I, I in fact was sort of quite struck. At the number of anti-cult signs uh, when I was living on the campus of the University of Nigeria in Sokka in 2012. So this is still, uh, you know, in a, a living issue. Um, but yeah. this was maybe the first time, you know, reading your novel that I've spent so much time kind of getting to imagine. Uh, what it would be like for the students who blended or joined um, the groups. (laughs) And sort of, you know, what I found particularly interesting, you know, is the range of reasons a student might do this, you know, as well as how, you know, in the novel, there's a kind of wide range of how much members took their Confra membership seriously, right? Some are really kind of, you know, they're gung-ho about it, whereas other characters are, You know, a bit more reserved about the degree to which they're they're committed. So, I kind of wondered on this note, like in your own experience, kind of how have confras sort of impacted student life in Nigeria, and kind of what approach informed your approach in tackling this topic in the novel. Yeah,
1: so so at at, at the time we were in school, it was in your face; It, it it was really there. This was just before this was the heights, just before it finally. Kind of went dark, then came again because it's a cycle. You have to remember that the um, in real life lessons have to be taught every twenty or thirty years, every generation, because a generation is born into adults who do not remember the last war, because they're in their twenties now and thirties, and they go to war again. And in university, lessons need to be taught every two or three years, which means that by the time children, by the time the students are now. The university time in Nigeria is four years. So by the time you expel a group of students and you teach a lesson in school and it's in the student's memory and and, and, and it's in the zeitgeist, in about two years, the people who learnt that lesson are leaving school. And you risk have to repeat it again. Or have to because it's the lecturers who remember, but the student life is short. It's four years. It's it's four years, it's a microcosm of of outside. So yeah, the the confraternities were quite weird in that. So they were founded in the the first of them was founded in the late 50s by uh, a group of friends in, in Ibadan and slowly by the 70s they had fractured into two or three um, groups and at the time they were sea based because the first confraternity was called the the pirates and had members like uh, founding members like Wale Showing who was an undergraduate student in University of Ibadan the Nobel prize laureate he had a, his name was Captain Blood so they had this kind of names ah you you could, you, you could be blackstoned and the black spotted, you know, it was basically Treasure Island on steroids. The Red Treasure Island, they loved it. And, they, and that became, so when the, when the pirates, um, when a group broke out in another university, they called themselves the Buccaneers. When a group broke out from the pirates in the University of Benin, they called themselves the Black Axe. When a group broke out in Portaco, they called themselves the Vikings. So that was the way it kept on metastasizing. By the eighties, the first of deaths had occurred. And this was the military era. For some reason, the newspapers were hyping them up as secret cults, as secret societies where there were demonic possession, where there was demonic actions in the it sold newspapers. And that's how the word secret cults came to a misnomer in my, in my opinion, because they had they had devolved into gangs as at that time. And that would have been a better word for them to recognize that it was just gangs, young people being stupid and also gangs, which were still middle class university based. By the time we were in school, it was still like that it was still university students in the gangs, so there were gang there, were, there was there was uh like the air Confraternities, and there were also female sororities, like the um, um, I think there was one that was really close to the Black hacks. I've forgotten what, what their name was. There were the Amazons. There was the Black Bras or the Black Braziers, And those were the kind of, yeah. And, and so it was, it was gangs, cliques on steroids. Now, when you're a child at the time, you don't, you're not disarticulate ab- ab- about it. But what I remember looking back now is that by the time I was in school, it wasn't the cool thing to do. So you have to understand that the confraternities were founded by non-conformists in the 50s. By, by non-conformists in the 50s and 60s. By the time I was in school 30 years later, the non conforming thing to do was not to be a member of a confraternity. So there was this uh, reader, Ihide Heloa, who is a, I think he works in a school district in Maryland, who, when he critiqued the book when it first came out in 2013 or so, he said that the tragic thing about the novel is that the children, the the students, Wanya and his friends do not know that they formed a confraternity of their own of those who refuse to join conferences they have their own rules they have their own in the um there's a there's a bit there's a bit cut from the american edition that is in the nigerian edition where there's this entire thing that happens where where, where they actually have basically the same idea of somebody betrayed the group because i was trying to comment on the fact that i didn't know i was doing it of course of course but i, I would claim it if a critic sees it i'll say thank you critic i'm going to own that but the idea that yeah the idea that um that even these children were, were becoming a gang on their own, a gang removed from, from, from the others. So that was the angle that, that I came from, that, that this was being treated the wrong way, that collective punishment couldn't work, that if somebody committed a crime, he committed a crime on its own. Even if he committed a crime with the group, you could go after who the criminals were. That the only way it could have worked was if you had brought it out into the open, that darkness thrives in darkness, that you should have legalized them or they were legal originally. You could register a fraternity as a club in a school. That's the way they started. You went, you got a charter, you registered it. If it was the American student, they would have given you a house for you and your members, But that didn't happen. But they were registered charters, but they started fighting themselves. And it became violent. And guess what? The guess what the, university, the universities banned them. Banning them didn't stop them. Made them worse. And by the time we were leaving school, by the time the violence was getting really bad in the northeast, they went into town. Taxi drivers... O- Okada riders, that's the, um, the motorcycle taxis that started in the 90s and became a thing. O- Okada riders, even uh, bus con- conductors and, and um, motor parked outs started becoming members of these gangs. So you had, um, in port you had two gangs called the Bamest and some, the Bam meant good, Bam meant fine, Bam meant bad or cool. So the baddest, no, the Bamest was the, the way we pronounce the, we, we don't do the T-H-E. In Nigerian English, it's not the Bamest and the whatever. You had those kind of gangs. The Black Acts had become a multinational or even it was no longer a, 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 a university thing. And those were, that's where it grew up into. But it all started from, and by the time I was in school, so we we were watching what, what we used to call black films, you know, Menace to Society, Boys in the Hood, and everybody wanted to be cool, like, you know, like Cuba Godin Jr., you know, you want, to, but looking back, you were watching American. Children who were not in university, who were street kids, and th- this was you in a university. We didn't watch higher learning, you know We caught a bit of we caught a bit of, um, we, we, we a bit of uh, what was that man's name? The man who made uh, ch- uh, university movies in the '80s with uh, Saturday night alums. Um, ah George Houston. What was that? Is the movie made yeah. So we, we didn't watch those, th- those films, you know uh we, we didn't watch those films instead we watched films like boys in the hood and those were really attractive hip-hop was coming up gangster rap was, was becoming a thing everybody was riding their trousers really their jeans re- 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 really low and listening to dr dre and snoop Dogg, and uh, nothing but a g thinning themselves into death yeah but but that, that was what it was stupidity and um mismanagement by by, by the authorities so even eventually by 1999 everybody had enough the army had left and the civilian reg- the civilian government within the first three or five months started by started by the university or by the um, governor in, in edo state he had a summit with the gang leaders and said renounce secret cultism come out and renounce it and we'll shut it down and guess what it worked for some reason it worked started from the university of benin every single university people came out and in front of the entire school took microphones and said I was a member of this i did this i did this and i'm no longer a member i renounce it and by renouncing you are completely free you could graduate and go on with your life and it died and a year and a half later some of the old student some of the old secret cult members went and arrested citizens arrest if you will in benin raided the bush where some young people who were in year one when the when the cult, when the calls ended they were now in year two or year three. They were not trying to start it again on their own. Went and arrested them and handed them over to this, to the school authorities, giving a hint that it wasn't about its members. It was about a thing on its own. And if you do not re, if you do not remind the population of students whose half-life is two years, that this is not a good thing. This is the reason why it was ended. Because children were practically dying. It will continue. But it's funny if you're a school administrator, and you're thinking long term of your salary and your life and everything. You're having to understand that you need to repeat lessons every two years. It's easy to to forget that the members who are coming in are coming in new, and they do not. Re- the school does not remember what happened a year and a half ago because you have a completely new set of people. And it's so bad now. It's it's from what I understand, it's really bad now.
0: And you know, can you share too just a bit? I mean, this gets brought up um, in the novel, but just like the the degree of pressure that you know, people in the nineties sort of faced to join. Like what was that kind of like on campus? How did that pressure
1: manifest? It, it was funny. It was two ways. It was both com- it was both comedic and really dangerous. So you had recruiters who were not really recruiters because the confraternities did not really need recruiters. You were the one who wanted to, to join. That was the myth that you were you had to be a fine boy. But even then you had Sophomores who were barely out of first year themselves, who were going out and saying, You should come and join us. You know, you're a fine boy. But they were basically looking for personal influence. You know, they were looking that they could get out. This boy looks rich. The family looks as though they were wealthy. And then it wasn't like now when you could, it was beginning to happen, but it hadn't really happened where you could have a place off campus and you could live your life separate from the rest of the students, where you could have a car in school. They existed, but my parents were first time university parents, they didn't know about that, even though my, even though, even though the, my, see, I'm, I'm using personalizations now, even though, let me go back to the novel, even though the character, even though the character's parents didn't know, and my parents didn't know, most of my colleagues, most of our parents were first-time parents in university, so so by the time I entered school, and by extension, the character in the novel enters school, he goes into the general hostel, and is living with other other people in a room of a room was designed for two but I remember in my year one it was designed for two by the time I was in school the school was the universities were so crowded because private universities were not yet allowed and the hostels had not been built since new hostels, new hostels had not been expanded since the 80s that we were 14 in our room legally we were the room for two had been expanded to, for, to six people but each person had a friend who didn't get a room the hostels we had six more squatters who were sharing bunks double bunks. Then we had two people who who we do not know where they came from, and they took up the space in the floor, so we were 14. You can imagine opening that room in the morning. Steam. (laughs) Steam rising from the miasma. I love that word, miasma. The miasma of human smells. Boys who stink. So, So, yeah, so yeah oh my god god you, you 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 took me back but but that was what it was like, so the pressure was there, but it's too easy to make it seem as though the pressure was overwhelming it it was, and it wasn't so you could you could survive it, you could blend, you could be tricked into blending. And the blending was basically just what you guys call hazing, which could be really bad because people died at times. Um, I, 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 I believe, yeah, I believe I know people who just vanished in school and they weren't killed in a, in a battle or in a war or whatever. They tried to join and there was an accident in the bush and they were just buried there. And it's one of the most tragic things that can happen because the society doesn't even allow the accidents to happen. They just lock, go go missing. So, so, yeah, so I'm not, it, it, looking back with hindsight, you are happy that you went through that and you survived it. But remember, like I said, there was, there was contempt for it from my cater and from the caterer of the characters that I chose to pick from. there was like, what is that? And I was trying to highlight, like I said, the idea that non the non-conformist thing to do by the time my characters are in school was not to join a society that was founded by non-conformists just 40 years earlier. Or 30 years earlier, yeah. So you and you can imagine how that happens in real life, where people say like, the, like your founding fathers, your founding fathers now will be called rebels by the people by the party that claims to honor the founding fathers. Because to even think of to even think of putting that sentence in a in a piece of paper that all men are created equal in the 1700s, that's radical. You know, that's radical. That is dangerous radicalism. That is whoa, no no that person should be lined up and shot. Of course, but they fear, didn't uh, practice what they, they preached. <laughs> of course, I know, but I know exactly they didn't, but they wrote it down, which meant that the country could always strive to it, which meant that a new generation of people could say that all men, and part of all men, by, the 19, by 1918, women could say, but all men, all are created equal. By the 1860s, by the 1960s, that the country that wrote that down, no matter what the people's personal failings were, on paper, Paper is steel. Paper is hard. Stronger than... Paper covers rock. Yes? Exactly. You know? So, so it's, 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 it's massive. And that is the kind of... That's what happens in, in, with human societies. The people who make change find out that their change becomes what other people say should never be changed. And it's now hijacked by people who at the time would have, would have spat on those who demanded that change. They now own it and say yes, you know? It's like Jesus. Jesus would be a radical today. Sure, so yeah. WWJD, you don't want to know.
0: You know? On on a slightly uh, different topic, I wanted to ask you, you already mentioned a bit about Pigeon English, but I wanted to ask you a bit about your use of Pigeon English um, in the novel and that you have... Yeah. Characters speaking both sort of what we might call standard English, for lack of a better way of putting it, mm. um, as well as pigeon. Um, and so I, yeah. I wondered, what was your strategy in terms of incorporating pigeon? And was this something that actually changed between the Nigerian version of the novel and the the version published by Ohio? Uh,
1: oh, uh, first of all, no, no, it was the same. Okay, um, so. And the funny thing about Pigeon English is that Pigeon English is a is a misnamed language because it's actually a sure. creole. So 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 West African mm-hmm. Pigeon English is, is for want of a better, we just call it Nigerian Pigeon English, Ghanaian Pigeon English, but they are all creoles. They are they've been on for too long to still be called pigeons, but they started as pigeons and became languages now. So for for me, um, and and you know it's the same group of languages that lead to gola in, in South Carolina and Jamaican Patois, Barbadian Patois, Bahamian, um, they, they are Creoles. It's the same group of languages across the entire North Atlantic coast among the slave communities there. And also slightly different from African-American vernacular English, which, is, which has been decrealized to such a position that you can barely hear the West African pidgin English that is still there, but you hear it a lot in Jamaica. You hear it a lot in Gola, where I heard Clarence Thomas is actually from. They say that's why he doesn't talk in public because he's still... I'm um, afraid of his Gullah accent silly man <laughs> but, 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 but yeah, but, but, yeah. So, 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 so that's the language and that's the language I grew up in because Warri was one of the, Wari Calabar and a few coastal cities along the Guinea coast was where those languages actually started as a corruption of Portuguese sea um, English coastal English and sea captains English and also local languages there that's what I grew up speaking because Wari was a town that had three indigenous ethnicities, the Ishekri, the Jaw, and the Urobo. And the language in the market is the language of the city. What's the language in the market where three languages are spoken? Pigeon English. Pigeon English was the language of the market. So, for, so when I was going to write pidgin, there, there, there have been many different attempts to write Pigeon, to write an autography of Pigeon English, some more successful than others. Most times, if you see a piece of English being written, the person who is writing it is writing it in, in its own way. And the way I chose was to use the English spellings because they say it's, it's an English. Um, the traditional way that is used by the Ministry of Information is to spell the way it is pronounced, which can be quite complicated. So like one is spelled W-A-N. I think that makes no sense. One is one. Um, D, D is... Or V... You spelled D-E or D-I. No, it's the same word. It's T-H-E. Um, when, you, when you pronounce certain words in English and you pronounce them the way they're pronounced, now, even though the traditional spelling is still there from ages ago, it doesn't change the way you, 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 you pronounce those words. So that's my own idea behind it. So I wanted to tell the story. I wanted to narrate the story in Nigerian English. But I wanted the characters who spoke Nigerian Pidgin English to speak Nigerian Pidgin English. And I wanted communication, is also really important. So I wanted it to seem because even though I speak Pidgin English, I'm functionally illiterate in Pidgin English, as many people are. I can't read a paragraph of Pidgin English. Really? I can write it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's clumsy. So I'm, mm. like, I'm like, I have to pace myself on English. I look at it at a glance and I pick it. So I had to have that in mind when I was writing the book so the artifices that the pigeon is stored in, in starts and stops you have characters who pigeon is, their pigeon is superficial when they are angry they shift to proper english you have characters who is the reverse when they are angry the english like me when i'm really really passionate about something english won't say it they said it is english can't do such a clumsy language that I have to now grind and go to, you know, the bottom of the heart where the pigeon is, and I'll say something like, Yes, waiting, they do um, you know, what's wrong with you? You know. And yeah, so so that was the that was what I was, that was the effect that I was going for. And it didn't change between the Nigerian edition and the um the the, the difference between both editions is just that the new edition went to another round of really, really deep editing that I found so thankful. And I told uh, Laura Murphy, who, who assisted with it, that almost all the choices that she made me make, that she made me make, were battles that I won with the previous editor. And I went, picked up the phone and I called my first editor and said that um, Molara, Molara Wood. I told her that um, you won't remember, but almost everything that I pushed back on, you were right. <laughs> that this American professor as one all of them and i'm older now and i think that oh my god you were right so every time i was like I was, young, I was like no you know that's where the craters are supposed to speak Mulera, you don't know please leave it she would say, okay she would leave it and i was wrong you know so so that was it so the difference is mostly for length certain parts of the plot um, certain parts were tightened certain things that um certain scenes were cut to tighten it and also you know University students will not read a very long book that would take half a semester for so yeah, so it was tightened and yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: I also was wondering, yeah, you know, since I do know the Nigerian uh, edition of this novel came out in, in two thousand and twelve. Uh so I you know, I, I assume you've had the chance to kind of talk with a number of readers about it. And so I'm wondering what was either the most interesting or surprising feedback that you've
1: gotten. Oh. Oh, the the most interesting was, so I was at a book fair and I was sitting at a friend who was a bookseller and a reader came up, two readers, and one, oh, this is fine, but should I buy it? The other person said, please don't buy it. It's a very funny book. I don't like it. (laughs) And and the bookseller now said, oh, you don't? Okay, please tell the author. And have, have you seen a black person blush? Yes, we do. She turned purple, you know, so, so, so that was fun. She said, no, I don't mean I don't like it like that. I said, no, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. But I, I think for, for, for most people is the idea of, I think it's a, variation of the, it's a variation of the effect that I got from purple hibiscus. The idea that what was ordinary to you was what reading on, on, on a page what you lived was important enough that people, that you could see it on a page, that you could recognize you on, on a page. And that was the effect I got from popular Life because that I knew these children, that I knew Cambly, I lived next door to this person. I knew this dad. I knew that family. Because I grew up with people like that who were sitting astride towards, whose parents were traditionalists and, and who had gone to mission schools and who were radical and who were trying to navigate this world of Christianity and their own lives and modernity, but who remember the old ways. I knew these people, because I grew up, I was their children, and I knew these kids, who could narrate all episodes of Sesame Street and the Magic uh, Castle and, uh, is it the Magic Thomas the, uh, the Steam Engine, who knew those, yeah, Thomas the Steam Engine, who knew those things, but also could tell you, who remember the stories that they're Parents told them when the electricity was out. Because that was how you got tales by moonlight. In our generation, you didn't go out on purpose because mosquitoes would kill you. But the electricity would go out, you would light the lantern. And my dad would entertain us with, um, with folktales. Folktales that I've forgotten. I can't tell my children those same folktales. My children watch anime and play games. You know, so that's, what, that's, the, that's the most gratifying feedback that I've gotten, that they recognize themselves. Even 20 years after... The fact, God, this 10 years, the, the book will be 10 years, will be 10 years next year. Oh my God. But even, even though the book is set in the 90s, people recognizing, yeah, because I remember somebody said that, somebody, somebody said once that oh, this book is about the 90s. It's, we need a modern novel about confraternities now. And I was like, oh, snap. That was what I said about the Achibe books and everything that I, well, I was being forced to read stories that were 20 years removed from me. And that's why I wrote Fine Boys. And this, whippersnapper is saying that my novel is too old for him what the hell yeah so that's kind of feedback that that i've been getting the language they recognize it they love the language even the messiness of the original version the, the organic uh inexperience in his telling is also really appreciated by by some because they recognize the reasons why certain scenes are there and all that but i i really love this more efficient cut of my film. <laughs> film rights have been sold, by the way. Sorry? Film rights have been sold, by the way. The oh, film, really? Oh, cool. Yeah. a Nigerian filmmaker who has not yet made the announcement, so I'll wait for him to do that, has optioned the rights. An exciting filmmaker is a mix of Nollywood and also this new Nigerian um, filmmaking art form that is still in the festival circuit, but we hope that one day it will become mainstream. Slightly more quality than the typical nollywood but with the same sensibilities and with the same truths is that kind of filmmaker so so he's acquired the rights from ohio because i allowed ohio take all those rights and help me manage them and i hope that he's been talking to me about his ideas because i'm going to have executive producer credit yay hope i chop some dollars it's been it's been too long
0: uh, so besides writing novels, I know you're also involved in publishing them. Um, so specifically, uh, you're the co-founder of Narrative Landscape Press, which is based yeah. in Lagos, Nigeria. So kind of mm-hmm. what inspired you to um, begin the press in 2016 and kind of how has it
1: grown? Okay, yeah, so uh, so my, my business partner, Amulio Jogu, she was an editor on my first novel. She worked with Kachifo Limited. Who owned the Farafina imprint on books? Uh, Kajifo Limited was one of the first. Uh, was one of the first publishers that began the new renaissance in Nigerian publishing in the mid 90s. You know, Nigeria was, democracy was back. The uh, destruction of the um, 80s and 90s was being slowly reversed by people coming back into those businesses that had that had basically died. You know, publishing had become only educational pop publishing. People were publishing self publishing novels, it was really high quality, but the skills had been lost. So Mukhtar Bakari, the founder of Kachifo Limited, basically um, trained a new kid of people that went on to found other pu- publishing houses that are thriving slowly today. Bibi Bakari Yusuf and um, our then partner Jeremy Weed founded cassava Republic. There was a book. Um, Bookcraft in Ibadan, which was founded about a few years earlier, that also came into that space, and these boutique publishers publishing discretionary reading, which was not a thing that should make money, but most of them felt that no, you could publish discretionary reading that was not curriculum reading and make money. You know, so 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 she was in that crew. So by the time I was in medicine, I'd left medicine not for writing. I was already writing. I practiced medicine up until twenty twelve, and. Um, my father got ill, and I went home to to um, to 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 be with him. And I ran the family business. Um, we we owned a mortgage bank and a finance business in in uh, in, in Wari. Then, of course, as first sons and their fathers, I want to do. My father got better, and we had a massive argument, and I left. And I was about to go back to medicine, where Mukhtar called me and said, "Over." Uh, my my young man, I'm tired, and could you help me run this business? You know, I know I publish it, but I really need to come and help me run it. So, 2013, I was the chief operations officer of a publishing house. I was a doctor, and I had some experience with finance, and that's how I left medicine. Med- Three years later, I had kind of outgrown it, and I was chomping at at the beats. and And um, I only came to me and said, "I go, I have this idea." These skills that we distilled and learned, we could actually sell them. You know, we could create a publishing services entity. I thought I thought that no. My own vision was to own a publishing house outright. Publishing. She said yes, but how do we finance? I said, okay, good. We, we could create a publishing services company where we sell our publishing services, raise capital, and eventually publish our own stuff. And that's what we. That's what we did. Take, take, taking the plunge is easy when you know that you have um. When you, when you know that you have backup, people say it's the other way around, that you burn your bridges so you, you can't look back. I've been of, of the opposite idea where no, I take a jump because I know that if things go wrong, I'm going to call up my family and say I need help. I'm going to go back home crying. That Oh, I feel like, can I come in? And I know that. So, so, so taking the plunge for me has never been really difficult. I can just say, you know what, this is what I, I, I want to do and work. And I know that I'll be supported by, by my family. So yeah, so Native Landscape was born out of that idea that we had learned these skills, and we could distill them for other independent publishers. We could sell them to um, independent authors, and we could slowly start publishing the things that we wanted to publish. And that's what has happened, you know. So in the last five years, I can't believe it's five years, we've, um, yeah, we've slowly grown into a company that while we do our publishing services, and we have a separate imprint for that now, the United Landscape Press imprint is publishing fiction. publishing children's writing is publishing creative nonfiction, and is becoming and of course we we publish uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie in anglophone west africa we still don't publish me native landscape press doesn't publish me in nigeria kachifo still publishes me uh, because i i i kind of knew that it wasn't the thing that i wanted to do i didn't want to have blinders on about my own stuff so i'm published by the company that trained me by the company i ran for a few years but yeah so so that's the idea behind narrative landscape press it is it, it is hell on writing though having to read other, other people's stuff I, there's nothing that kills the soul worse than reading the submissions pile the slush pile of the submissions desk it is soul destroying but yeah people can say that there's benefit because you see good you see one good book out of no it doesn't know that's nonsense that's justifying rubbish it is hell but we do it anyway, yeah.
0: Um, Sort of related, uh, you know, my last question is, um, I'm wondering uh, if you could tell us kind of what novel or other writing project uh, you're currently working on now?
1: And this is why I love Chimamanda. She has this answer. Oh, that I, I, I don't discuss working projects, which I always tell like, her, "Ooh, because there's nothing working, there's nothing in the project. there's nothing in progress, there's nothing." Uh, yeah, for for me, I've I've been starting and stopping, starting and stopping, starting and stopping a novel for about four years now, and I I don't know what it's about, and I do know what it's about. You know, um, I um, I came across Jonathan Franzen's. Um, it wasn't the corrections. It was the other one. Was it Freedom? Was it Freedom? Um, yeah, but... Uh, no, I, I couldn't read the corrections. I, I couldn't get into it. But there was another one about this family and two... a uh, Man and wife and two children, boy and girl, and their life over like its span of 10 years. And I was struck by how much I recognized it. And, and I've been starting and stopping a book that is not a response to it, but that I think was provoked by it. And it's time. And, and I'm just hoping that um, now that the kids are independent, um, um because we have um, teenagers now, but one is on the spectrum and needs more care. But now that it's striving, is really high functioning, and, and the twin brother is doing so well, and we're a bit more stable in Lagos, that eventually, I think, and after this interview, I've put a marker down that, okay, you better go and do this, because by the time this interview comes out, people will be asking for your Jonathan Franzen novel. But but yeah, so I, I think I think I've I think I've put it out there, and I think the universe will answer me. But that's what I've been on for about um, three to four to five years now. Looking at it on my desktop, it's it's on the cloud. I open it, I look at it, I look at it, I look at it. My Microsoft Note is filled up with different plot points, but it's just I'm just I I guess that's what they say when they now claim that it took them seven years to to write a novel. Meanwhile, they were at it for only cumulatively six months. So yes, so that is um. I'm, I've, been, I've been writing my novel for five years now. Yeah.
0: Uh, well, Ihoza, uh we've taken up um, you know a fair bit of your time, but I just wanted to thank you, uh, and I look forward to this novel, you know, whatever sh- uh, shape it, it takes. Um, <laughs> thank and you so yeah, much. I want you to thank you uh, for, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. Uh, take
1: care. Thank you. Take care.